all set up there? Okay, good. It's great to see everybody today. Um, and so glad you're joining us online. Um, if you're new with us, uh, my name is David, and today we're going to wrap up our three-part mini-series on the Beatitudes, which are those opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount. But before we do that, we've got to get our football back. So, Quinn, you want to bring the football up? All right, so Quinn's had this thing all week. You got it? Good toss, man. All right. Good job. So, thanks, Kate. So, um, we've been using this football to remind us of those fundamentals. The game of football can become pretty complicated at times, but it all comes down to the very basics of understanding the ball. And that's what this church has been about for over two centuries, focused on the fundamentals. And of course, the Sermon on the Mount is one of those fundamentals, that teaching that will constantly be bringing us back to the basics of our faith. And that's why we use this image up here, because it reminds us of how when Jesus came to talk about his kingdom, that he flips our world upside down. The world is focused on self, celebrating our own accomplishments. It's all about pride. But Jesus calls us to humility so that we can celebrate him and glorify God. And so as we think about it in that light, that's why we see some of his teachings to be a little challenging for us. Like the first will be last, or the last will be first. The proud will be scattered, the humble exalted. That's just not the way things work in this world. Because the things that the world prizes, God despises. And the things that God prizes, the world despises. And that's why we feel so out of place sometimes. It's because we're not made for this world. God is shaping us for his kingdom. So let's ask the Lord's help, and then we'll dig into these final Beatitudes. Father, we come before you this morning to seek your truth. Holy Spirit, would you speak to each of us, softening our hearts, focusing on the truth that you want us to see, especially those ones that make us uncomfortable. Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. It's for your great name's sake that we pray. Amen. Five, one through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks, Kira. So we're going to wrap up these Beatitudes today, um, and then next week, Cammie is going to be back, so I'm going to give her the football. All right, we made that. We had two successful passes today. 
And she's going to start us on the next mini-series within the Sermon on the Mount. I know some of you have been saying, when are you going to let Cammy preach again? So um, please come back for that. It's going to be great. All right. So we've used this graphic up here for the past few weeks to help us see how Jesus relates elements of humility with kingdom blessings as he describes these beatitudes. We've seen how being poor in spirit was all about appreciating the total depravity of our sin. It was a necessary condition for the kingdom of God. What's more, there's nothing we can do to deal with this sin. And so we need a savior. And God sends us his comforter, the Holy Spirit, whenever we respond in faith to, the, to Christ's saving work on the cross. The Holy Spirit transforms our hearts, making us meek when we turn from relying on self to relying on God. Meekness is an inner strength that can only come from God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit within us. That same Holy Spirit makes us hunger and thirst for righteousness or being right with God, obedient to his will and his word. We don't do good things to get into heaven. It's because we're already in heaven that we respond by doing good things. Now, when we say we're already in heaven, we mean that we have assurance that we're going to heaven by Christ's blood. We were headed for destruction, but Jesus saved us. He extended us mercy. And because of this great mercy that we've received and we didn't deserve, we respond by extending that same mercy to others, even though they don't deserve it. The kingdom also requires people who will be pure in heart, not just pure external actions, but pure internal intentions too. So today, as we wrap up these Beatitudes, we're going to focus on number seven, eight, and nine. So number seven, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now the word peacemaker suggests the existence of conflict, or else there wouldn't be a need to make peace. Conflict arises when there's a disagreement about a matter, and we seem to have lots of disagreements in our lives, don't we? In fact, we have an entire news industry that thrives on the volume of conflict throughout our world. At the international level, we have wars, economic sanctions. At the national level, Congress seems to be the very definition of conflict most days. Our social policy, all sorts of conflict. And of course, at the individual level, we have lawsuits, divorces. In many ways, conflict pervades our world. But let's be honest. Most of us like a little conflict in our lives, don't we? We like to spar a little bit, especially at the early stages of a conflict, particularly if we think we've got the upper hand. But then we got to clean it up because most conflicts get pretty messy. And while most of them are external to us, the cost are born on the inside, that pit in our stomach for those sleepless nights. And if we walk our conflict back to their cause, we'd find that sin lies at the root of it. No matter how we characterize sin, it always comes back to us putting ourselves before God and before others. That's what we call pride. And if you have 
7.5 billion sinners on this planet putting themselves first most of the time, it's easy to see why we have so much conflict. Of course, we can't blame everyone else for conflict because our, we're really our own worst enemies. It's our sin that causes most of our conflict. But Jesus teaches that peacemakers are a hallmark of his kingdom. So now he clearly doesn't want us to foster conflict, but we also shouldn't be looking to avoid it either. Because that doesn't get after the underlying issue. You see, avoiding conflict often just allows it to build up. All that tension, that grows. To be a true peacemaker, we have to get after the sin that causes the conflict. And as we know, the only answer to sin is Christ's blood. So Jesus is the key to peacemaking. Now, let's look at a conflict in the context of just a typical relationship between two people. This is an area where I think most of us can relate. So these pictures up here, they probably hit pretty close to home to most of us, don't they? To be sure, there's plenty of blame on both sides of any conflict. Now the prospects for the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about are pretty grim and both parties are in Christ. You see, it's not that Christians won't have conflict, it's that they know how to deal with the conflict at its root cause. They know how to deal with the sin. They know Jesus, and remember, that's the key to dealing with all of our underlying conflict. If they're not in Christ, the best hope is a compromise, and compromises are always suboptimal or an agreement to move beyond the conflict, but that always builds up the residual tension. By the power of the Holy Spirit, however, Christians are compelled to deal with sin, to confess it, to repent it, to seek forgiveness. And while both parties have the responsibility to work through this, we always must start with ourselves. We have to take the plank out of our own eye before we can deal with the speck in the other person's eye. So now let's put this in the context of a more specific kind of relationship, marriage. So you can check out Madison and Malcolm at the bottom left. They're having a bad day. Many of us have had days like this, maybe even this week, perhaps even this morning. But here's the thing, if you see on the right, They've had better days, just like we all have. Look how happy they were on their wedding day. Fortunately, they're both believers, and they have a Christian marriage. Of course, that means they're still going to be dealing with conflict, as we see there on the left. But because their marriage is in Christ, they're going to seek reconciliation with God and each other as kingdom dwellers. As they grow closer and closer to God, they can't help but grow closer and closer to each other. That's how God designed marriage. Working together to resolve conflicts, not avoiding it, because again, that's not healthy either. Rather, they walk through it in Christ. Because the ensuing reconciliation from a conflict fertilizes the relationship. And you get the full fertilizer effect. Because not only 
does the conflict stink like a really good fertilizer. But the reconciliation that follows also promotes the future growth that we expect from a good fertilizer. There's nothing that strengthens a relationship like knowing that you can trust the other person because you know they're gonna work with you and get through whatever conflict comes your way by dealing with the sin that lies at the heart of it. So what conflict do you need to deal with today? What relationships do you need to reconcile, to make peace with? Because that's exactly what Jesus demands as his children, or as Jesus calls us, sons of God. So now what if the other person isn't a believer? Maybe it's even a professed enemy, that coworker who you've tried to befriend for years, but they just constantly roll these barrels at you all day long at work. Well, again, Jesus turns our world upside down because later in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches that we're to love our enemies. As sons or children of God, we're to turn the other cheek and seek peace, even with those who persecute us. Number eight, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, perhaps as much as any other beatitude, this one underscores the stark reality of the great reversal in our lives. This is where it hits close to home. We're sort of okay with God scattering the proud and exalting the humble. It seems reasonable. But what's this deal where we humble ourselves before God, we strive to do the right thing, and then we're going to get persecuted for it. You see how Jesus really turns our world upside down on this one. The word persecuted in the original language means to be put to flight and then pursued, to be hunted like prey. So this is much more than name calling or not being selected for a promotion or trashing you on social media. It's like that playground bully that relentlessly stalks you during recess, kicking you, slapping you, and pushing you when the teacher's not looking. Now, you may be saying to yourself, wow, I have never really been persecuted quite like that for pursuing righteousness. Well, I'd like us to resist the temptation to explain it away with some cultural norms or times have changed, like maybe that's the way it was when Jesus was here, but we just don't do that anymore. Because I think if we do that, we miss a more important question for us to wrestle with. You see, have we really, truly, no kidding, been pursuing righteousness, being obedient to God's will in our lives? Because if we've been half-stepping it in our pursuit of righteousness, perhaps that's why we haven't been persecuted. I wonder, have we adopted our church life to such an extent that it's a closer resemblance to the world than the kingdom of God? Are we still fascinated by that dark wide path on the left up there that we have been talking about for the past two weeks? Would there be enough evidence in a court of law to convict us of the kind of humility that Jesus is calling us to? Maybe that's why the American Christian Church doesn't experience the kind of persecution the way others seem to 
around the world. Now sure, there could be any number of other explanations, and there's certainly still persecution. I'm not saying that at all. But I do think it's worth it for each of us to wrestle with this other potential explanation first. Are we truly, no kidding, pursuing righteousness with all that we've got? Because Jesus will go on to teach throughout the Gospels that the disciples are going to need to take up their cross daily and follow after him. They're going to need to be all in. And when they do that, they'll be persecuted for simply pursuing righteousness, just like Jesus was. In fact, many of them were persecuted to the point of martyrdom. So we shouldn't be surprised when we face persecution. This is indeed the reality of the great reversal. But Jesus gives us hope as we endure persecution, whatever form it takes, because kingdom dwellers know that the kingdom of God, eternity with their Father, is in view at the end of that narrow, well-lighted path up there. And then Jesus shows us how intensely personal this is for him, a special blessing for being insulted for the sake of the king. Number nine, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let's begin by looking at how this beatitude differs from the previous one. First, we'll see how Jesus essentially expands this list from being persecuted, that's the green thing you see up there, beatitude number eight, by adding being reviled and people telling lies about us in blue. So that's why this is a personal attack on you. It's about hate and lies. But what really differentiates this beatitude from the previous one is the object of the attack that you see up there in red. In this beatitude, we're not being harassed for our acts of righteousness, we're being insulted for Jesus. It's not what we're doing, it's what he did. That's why this seems to come across as so intensely personal for Jesus. So why would we be insulted for Jesus? Let's think about that. I mean, Jesus is the most divisive figure in the history of the world. Let's face it, the world does not take kindly to Jesus coming and flipping it on its head. It's antagonistic towards him. The world revels in sin. Jesus came to conquer sin. The world worships self. Jesus calls us to worship God. But here's the thing. Receiving an insult for Christ is actually quite a remarkable experience if you think about it. Because the only reason someone would insult you for Christ is if you somehow represented the truth of Christ to them. And as we've learned, many of the Beatitudes speak to the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in our lives. After that red dot transformation, we left the old life. We're born again into a new life in Christ, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And the longer we walk down that sanctifying road, that narrow, well-lighted path on the right, the less we look like the world, and the more we begin to take on the attributes of the kingdom. 
You see, we're being insulted for Christ because we're becoming more Christ-like. Can you think of a higher honor? What an affirmation of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we might be insulted because we're too Christ-like. Persecution, insults, hatred, lies, whatever. That's why the disciples withstood being tortured, beaten, and martyred for Jesus. Now you might be thinking, I don't know if I'd have the courage to hold up under something like that. But you gotta remember, those disciples were a pretty wimpy bunch until they received the Holy Spirit. And then look what happened. The Holy Spirit used that ragtag handful of fishermen to spread the good news of Jesus to the four corners of the world. From a handful of ordinary people to 2.4 billion Christians around the world today. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, their devotion to Christ far outweighed any earthly persecution, insults, hatred, or even lies. You see, when you really believe in something, I mean really believe it, it takes over your life. So when people complain about you and they tell lies about you, maybe even take a swing at you from time to time, whatever the persecution looks like, you're so focused on the king and serving him, you just let it go. Your trust and your focus is on God, nothing else. And the funny thing is, you don't even do it for a reward. You don't even see it as a sacrifice. It just becomes who you are. Now, we don't know what rewards in heaven will look like, since heaven seems like one big reward anyway. But we do know that the use of this word reward suggests that God is especially glorified when we are insulted for the beautiful, the wonderful, the powerful name of Jesus. So you can see how rich this text is for us, how we can grow in our understandings of the blessings of Christ's kingdom. So I think this has been a pretty good start to a Sermon on the Mount to understand what Jesus really has in mind with this character. And this is how he kicks off the series. And we're just really getting started here. Because the Beatitudes are a call to humility. As an heir of the kingdom, I hope Jesus is turning your worlds upside down through the truth of the Beatitudes. And that unlike the world, you're not going to be self-righteous. You're going to be poor in spirit, acknowledging your sin. That unlike the world, you're not going to try to just accept your sin, you're going to mourn it. That unlike the world, you're not going to rely on your own strength, you're going to turn to the Holy Spirit for your strength. That unlike the world, you're not going to do good things to get into heaven, nope, because your salvation is already secured, you're going to respond to that great gift by doing good things hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Unlike the world, you're not going to sit in judgment. You're going to let mercy triumph over judgment. That unlike the world, you're not going to focus on pure actions. You're going to strive for pure hearts. Unlike the world, you're not going to foster or avoid conflict. You're going to make peace. Unlike the world, you're going to half-step in your pursuit of righteousness. You're going to be all in to the point where you're persecuted for it. Unlike the world, you're not going to remain in the old life. You're going to be born again, becoming Christ-like, 
to the point where you're reviled, hated, insulted, maybe even lied about for his great name. You recall a few weeks back when Cammie and I gave the cultural historical context of the Old Testament to kind of set up the Sermon on the Mount series. I walked through this wave-top review of the Old Testament, highlighting five major covenants or promises that God made with man. And while man fails on his end of things, God, by his nature, always lives up to what he says. He promised Noah that he'd never destroy the earth again with a flood, and he hasn't. He promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation, and he did. He promised Moses that he'd lead the people, his nation Israel, into the promised land, giving them the law, and he did. He promised David that he would bring forth the Messiah from one of David's descendants, and he did. Through prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, he promised a Messiah who would come to establish a new covenant, a covenant that would be different from the rest, where he would write his law on their hearts, where he'd be their God and they'd be his people, where he'd forgive their sins and remember them no more. This new covenant was sealed by Christ's blood, that red dot that we keep talking about. Jesus didn't come to conquer or take over the world. He came to seal the new covenant and usher in his kingdom. And we can be assured that we're kingdom dwellers, heirs of the kingdom, not by anything we do, but by Jesus' blood. Wouldn't life be so much more enjoyable if we knew that everything was going to be okay in the end? Not that we'd be wealthy or successful or famous, because those are outcomes all about the world and self. But what if we knew that regardless of worldly challenges, we would spend eternity with the king in his kingdom? Well, the Beatitudes do that for us. Jesus shows us the outcome, that heirs of his kingdom have so much to look forward to. Eternal comfort, reaching the promised land at last, eternally satisfied, where mercy triumphs over judgment. Finally, seeing God being called a child of God, heirs of the kingdom of heaven and all of its eternal rewards. You see, these beatitudes, the promises of blessings in the kingdom, and God always fulfills his promises. That's his nature. When he speaks, things happen. You can count on it. This, my friends, is how the game ends. And this is why we celebrate our communion this morning. There's been some tough teaching here. The doctrine of total depravity, it's heavy, but that's just the nature of our sin. As we move into our response time of communion, let's take a few minutes of silence to confess, repent, and mourn our sin. But let's also take a few minutes to celebrate this new covenant sealed in Christ's blood, a promise that can't be broken, a promise that seals our place in heaven.
Welcome to the Lord's table. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, we humble ourselves in your presence. Our sin is ever before us, reminding us of our need for a Savior. You are our God, and we are your people. So you sent your Son to be our Savior, dying on the cross for our sins, establishing this new covenant that we now live under. Lord, we are not worthy that you should come under our roof, but speak the word only, and our souls shall be healed. Amen. As we gather at the foot of the cross, we're reminded that there's never been the forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Under the new covenant, Christ's blood serves as the means to our forgiveness. Before the Lord went to the cross to shed his blood for us, he had a meal with his disciples, instituting communion between God and man for all time. On the night of his betrayal, our Lord Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the saving death of the risen Lord Jesus until he comes again. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.